Hello and welcome back to Everyday Anarchism. I am your host, Graham Colbertson. This is the second Q&A episode that I am doing. Remember, I'll be putting out an episode every week. Every other week, it will be an original episode that I have recorded. And then on the alternate weeks, I'll be responding to your questions. So please send me your questions to everydayanarchismpodcast at gmail.com. I'm especially interested in your questions if you are not from the United States. About 20% of my listeners are not from the U.S., but so far all the questions have been from the U.S. So uh, Germany, I'm, I'm looking at you. You're number two on my list. I would love to hear from you and, you know, everyone else all over the world listening. So far, I'm getting plenty of questions, but because I don't have a ton of listeners, most people are still finding the show asking questions about the idea of everyday anarchism which is great. I love talking about it. So I haven't yet gotten in the groove of being able to have two episodes in a row about the topic that I spoke about. So this week, the Q&A is mostly not about Tolkien. I only got one question about the Tolkien episode. So please, if you are listening, if you listen to the divorce episode that's coming out next week and you think, oh, you know, I've kind of got some questions, but Graham's got lots of questions and I'm not sure please just email me. No question is too short or tangential. I would love to feel like this is a back and forth. I speak and then you speak and then I speak and then we can go from there. Um, I will say I actually got some great Tolkien questions that I'm not using because the guy who sent in the questions is in fact a scholar uh, of Tolkien and of medieval literature who has his own podcast about Tolkien. And so I invited him to come on the show to talk about Tolkien and anarchism. So his name is Sam Brock, and I certainly recommend his podcast, Quinya Questions in Quarantine. It might be Kenya Questions in Quarantine. Tolkien pronunciation is hard. That is a podcast about this brilliant, messy book, The Silmarillion, this history of Middle Earth, especially if you're really interested in Tolkien. If you listen to the final episode of Quinya Questions in Quarantine, that really covers the connections between the Silmarillion and the Lord of the Rings, and also is mostly what Sam and I are going to be talking about. So I'll be recording that episode uh, at around the same time that this episode is released, and I'll have it out as soon as I can. And then uh, the Wednesday after this episode comes out, the divorce episode will be coming out. So lots of stuff from me. I hope you're enjoying it. And I just ask again, email me at everydayanarchismpodcast at gmail.com so I can keep answering your questions. If you disagree with me, don't let it go unchallenged. I, I thrive on trying to respond and reconfigure my thoughts and, of course, change my mind as I hear new perspectives. So please, let's do it. Okay. Time to get to the questions. The first question is from Jamie. Jamie asked the question where he mentioned the Iliad last week. Jamie has promised to ask a question every week. Let's hope they keep coming. Jamie says, In response to that first quote about the destruction of power plants, that comes off to me as more Luddidic, meaning Luddite, the people who smashed the factories. He would have assumedly gone to Oxford during the time of the Industrial Revolution, and it seems more likely that he said this in response to those protesting mechanization. 
I guess my question is, where do you see the difference between anarchist movement for personal freedom and rebelling against a government based off means of production and anti-progressive movement out of self-preservation? Does the motive matter? How does a movement of self-preservation to avoid planned obsolescence set a foundation for a society of cooperation and benevolence? P.S. If you need another source of metaphor, my current readings include Genesis, Enuma Elish, and The Great Dictator by Chaplin. So first, Jamie, I'm going to have to disappoint you because I couldn't think of a way to give you this answer in terms of either of these uh, creation stories or Middle Earth. So the way I take this question, and Jamie, please email me if I've gotten this wrong, is you're suggesting that Tolkien is praising the people who are blowing up the factories, who are trying to stop progress. But there's a long narrative that the Luddites and the various other people who tried to stop progress, who tried to destroy the machinery, were not taking a political stance so much as self-preservation. They were losing their jobs and they wanted to keep their jobs and they wanted to destroy the factories since the factories where they used to work were getting mechanized. There's a ton of stuff going on here, most of which doesn't directly relate to Tolkien. My first answer though is there's been a lot of research by this guy, um, Eric Hobsbawm, a famous uh, British historian who died about a decade ago. And he has argued that we really only see that kind of Luddite behavior for self-preservation when their jobs are actually going away. That is to say, if factories get mechanized, but more jobs are created or that workers are given different tasks but don't lose their jobs, the workers do not tend to destroy the machinery. And in this respect, I think that goes perfectly with Jamie's question. Isn't this just self-preservation? Isn't this just selfishness? Another way of thinking about this is it's just pure conservatism. Um, I spoke about this a little bit during the Tolkien idea. Isn't it just that people want things to stay the same? They are against progress. And in particular, someone like Tolkien, someone who is successful and well off and has a decent amount of power isn't he you know doesn't he want the factory to blow up simply because the factory offers a potential alternative to the world of oxford that makes his life possible the first thing i would say jamie is yeah i think there is part of that there is some of that just reflex i don't want the world to change because i like the world as it is but i as an anarchist do not necessarily object to it. I think you can be a Tory anarchist or an everyday anarchist and want to stop progress insofar as so many movements for quote progress are in fact destructive of a society that is working and of you know a a set of practices that make people happy and should endure rather than being destroyed. The obvious place where I see this is in ecology. We have systematically, as a world, destroyed our forests. And yes, we started destroying the forests with the Industrial Revolution. Well, okay, so the in the UK, where the Industrial Revolution really started, they had already cut down all the forests to 
make room for sheep and to build ships and to burn the woods. But the really the systematic destruction of the forests comes with industrial factories and industrial farming. And this is very efficient. It is efficient to burn down the forest and plant things there. Cash crops. This is progress. It has become obvious that this is in fact incredibly inefficient. Factory farming and industrial farming does not work very well. While it worked for a little while and then it stopped working until we developed really good fertilizers in the mid 20th century. But slowly all of the insects that are doing the pollinating are dying. And slowly all of the trees that are providing oxygen for us and also filtering out air pollutions are dying. And we are destroying the planet in the name of progress. So does it matter if someone wants to prevent the trees from being destroyed because they're taking a bold stand against industrial progress versus they happen to live in that forest and they love it and that is they are personally attached to it? I would say no. I would say this can be one and the same thing. And the forests especially seem to have been Tolkien's great passion. The people who win the big battle in the second book of the Lord of the Rings are not in fact people at all. They are the trees. And not only do they win the big battle, but they also destroy one of the preeminent villains of the Lord of the Rings, Saruman. He never really has a chance to do anything because the trees just destroy his city. He has been cutting things down and burning the trees and the trees rise up. They are called the Ents, if you remember. They are tree people and they stop Saruman. It is also the case that in the previous age, so there's a huge mythology with Tolkien, the Numenorians are the most powerful people to have ever lived. They're, they're some combination of the Roman Empire and Atlantis and like Germanic Norse tribes. And the gods eventually destroy them. And one of the reasons why the gods destroy them is because they are cutting down trees. They are making progress, but that progress is awful and horrible. So does it matter if it's an angry tree who is being chopped down or someone who believes in protecting the environment? Does it matter if it's some sort of personal conservatism versus a sincere belief? I would say, under my conception of everyday anarchism, it doesn't really matter. These two can be one and the same. But I'm very sensitive to the idea that, like, perhaps the resources of a place like Oxford could be distributed much better so that many more people could have a chance to learn. And this is a case where an anarchist who works at Oxford might say, oh yes, this is good. This is equality for everyone. I will sacrifice. Whereas a conservative anarchist might, might not, might try and stand up for their privileges. So I'm very sensitive to the potentiality for that distinction, but I also think there are places, and I think I found one with Tolkien and the forests, where there's not really a clear difference between anarchist principle and self-preservation. Everyday anarchism should unite self-preservation and anarchist principle. And I think most of the time they do, and it's only in the cases where they do not that we have a problem.
Okay, next question. This actually came from two different people. So uh, I'm trying to only answer one question per person per Q&A, although the people who've written multiple questions, don't worry, I've got your questions and I intend to answer them when the time comes. But two people asked the same question. So I'm going to read you both of their formulations. So Mark writes, I assume a future podcast would tackle the question of differentiating anarchists from libertarians and communitarians. So maybe I'm jumping the gun, but I'm interested in better understanding these distinctions. Courtney asks, could you define the isms you mention? I'm truly exposing myself here, but I have very little knowledge about libertarianism in particular. So first of all, after I got several of these, I started a new podcast. Um, It's called Five Minute Political Glossary, and I'm defining one political term in five minutes every week. So you can search for it if you want it. Right now, there's only two up, and I haven't gotten to libertarianism yet, so I'm going to go ahead and define libertarianism. This is such a complicated question, and I am actually going to give you three separate answers. So, here's the first one. Libertarian in the 19th century is more or less synonymous with anarchism. It is also moderately synonymous with liberal at the beginning. In the early 19th century and late 18th century, anarchism and liberalism and libertarianism are all sort of mixed together and they start differentiating themselves in the 19th century. But by the late 19th century, liberalism has gone its own way and means something, you know, further to the left than monarchy liberalism is, but to the right of anarchism and libertarianism. But libertarianism is more or less the same thing as anarchism. You couldn't find a clear way to distinguish them. Kropotkin, this hero of David Graeber and the hero of many anarchists and still the most prominent of all the anarchist writers, uses the words anarchism and libertarian almost interchangeably. And Uh, The other place where anarchism and libertarianism are the same is when you're looking at some of the socialists or communists who want to use the power of the state to bring justice. Someone like Kropotkin would oppose that and say, no, we need socialism, but it needs to be libertarian socialism. Socialism that doesn't require a man with a gun and a boss. So that's option one. Libertarianism is anarchism. It is synonymous with an emphasis on freedom. However, that's not how most people use libertarian today in America. Libertarian experienced a metamorphosis of how it's used in the 20th century. And the like everyday version of libertarian is what I'm going to give you next. So you may have heard this phrase before, something like, I'm socially liberal, but fiscally conservative, something like that. And this is where people often use libertarian in the American context. So if you think of the question, how much should the government intervene in the world of economics? Should the government tax a lot and regulate companies and distribute the wealth? We often think of this as a left-wing position. Okay, so that's the first axis versus the right-wing position of the government should just get out of the way and let corporations create the wealth. This is called laissez-faire or trickle-down economics, and that's more likely to be considered a right-wing position. But the government doesn't just intervene in economics. 
It intervenes in all other sorts of places. It defines who is allowed to get married. It defines things related to freedom of speech and freedom of religion. Should the government be going out and banning certain religions and preventing people from getting married who want to get married? And we would say, oh, well, if you want to let people do whatever they want and get the government out of the way, that would be a liberal position. So the liberal position says when it comes to money, fiscal matters, the government should intervene. But when it comes to social matters, the government should stay out of the way. And so the standard right-wing opposition to this is the government should do things like ban gay marriage, but give lots of power to corporations and leave the market completely free. You can think of this in the George W. Bush administration. The George W. Bush administration did everything it could to strengthen Christianities and oppose gay marriage and also did everything it could to let the U.S. economy run without government intervention. And libertarianism, as it's normally used in America, is to say, wait a second, Neither the left-wing people or the right-wing people are being coherent here. Either it is the government's job to make society run, or it is the government's job to mostly get out of the way. And if you are on the left when it comes to economics, then you really should be on the left when it comes to freedom. If you think it's the government's job to intervene all the time in the economy, then you just like a big government and you should own that. On the other hand, the libertarians say this to the conservatives, if you think it sucks when the government intervenes, why are you constantly asking the government to decide who can have sex with who? This is ridiculous. Either it's good for the government to get involved or it's bad for the government to get involved. So people call themselves libertarian and they often say, that they are fiscally conservative, meaning they agree with the Republicans. Lower taxes, less regulation when money comes up. But they agree with the liberals. Fewer restrictions on speech and religion. This is a coherent position. But there is one more absolutely crucial distinction between anarchism and libertarianism and in this sense, we could think of libertarianism as the opposite of anarchism. So in the 20th century, a man named Rawls, John Rawls, wrote an incredibly important book that really served as the, the definition for liberalism as far as political philosophers are concerned. So political philosophers would say that Rawls defined basically the beliefs of the Democratic Party. He is the standard liberal. And, you know, he is for intervention in the economy and resistance to intervention in people's day-to-day -day lives, in their religion, in their freedom of speech, in their relationships. So this other guy, Robert Nozick, who is the founder of libertarianism as a philosophy, he read Rawls's book and he thought, hmm, this can't be right. Rawls has created an incoherent position. So he said, let's start with a coherent position which is anarchism. Anarchism, everyone can do whatever they want. And then Nozick states that if you have anarchism, the next thing you are going to happen is anarchy. 
You are going to have the war of all against all. You are going to have everyone fighting everyone else. And this is not good. Nozick says, so we've got a problem. We need a government to protect people because anarchism will be a disaster or anarchy will be a disaster. But pretty soon the government will uh, start taking too much power and our views will be incoherent and we won't have freedom anymore. So we need a minimal government. So far, so good. And then Nozick says, well, Locke was right. It's not life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. It's life, liberty, and the pursuit and protection of property. So Nozick says we can get rid of every single thing in the government except property has to be protected. Otherwise, it will be anarchy because someone will try and come to your house and murder you purge style. The purge is what people think anarchy is. So Nozick says, okay, get rid of everything about government except basically the police. There should be a boss with a gun who stops people and hurts people if necessary if they try and take other people's property. And also the government can fight wars against other countries. But that's it. The government can't do anything else. The only allowable government is the police, essentially. In this conception of libertarianism, I think it is the opposite of anarchism. Anarchism says if you throw away the boss with the gun, everything else will work. Libertarianism says if you keep the boss with the gun, the government doesn't have to do anything else and everything will work. Libertarian and anarchist were synonymous 120 years ago, now although they both still believe in freedom and are trying to create an ideologically coherent position, both of them see the standard left-wing and the standard right-wing beliefs in America not being coherent. In some ways, they are the exact opposite. That was a trickier and more complex answer than I meant to give when I started out on this, so just let me know if it makes sense. And libertarians, I would love to hear from you and have a chance to respond to your thoughts about that definition. Okay, two more questions. And the next one is really about capital A anarchism. It also comes from Mark, who asked about libertarianism. And Mark writes, It seems difficult, if not impossible, to imagine a largely anarchic society, especially one thriving in an international system of nation-states. Could patches of anarchy thrive in an international environment that seems to favor nation-states? This is a fantastic question, and I have two answers to it. First, yes, and second, no. The first answer is sure. Anarchist governments or spaces or confederations or whatever you want to call them can definitely thrive and work with nation-states. So I think people don't generally know this, but there is an anarchist, whatever you want to call it, territory. It's even hard to find language because you don't want to say anarchist territory or anarchist government or anarchist country because they don't really want any of these things. We hear all the time about Kurdistan, which is this country that doesn't exist. It's a nation, meaning a group of people bound together with a shared culture 
who don't have a state, meaning a sovereign government over a chunk of property. And the Kurds, just like the Quebecois and the Catalans and the Scots, want their own country. They want a nation that is also a state. But the guy who founded Kurdistan, Abdullah Ocalan, I'm sorry, I'm sure I'm not pronouncing that right, doesn't want Kurdistan to be a state. These days, anarchists have a tendency to give their anarchism a new name to distinguish it from some other version of anarchism that they don't like. So Ocalan doesn't call it anarchism. He calls it democratic confederalism, maybe democratic confederation. But Kurdistan is basically run on anarchist grounds, and it works, and it works great. You may have seen the women freedom fighters of Kurdistan who fought ISIS. They are unbelievable, and they exist because of anarchism. So anarchism works, and the United States government allied itself with the Kurds, and it went great up until the time in the past, what, 18 months, maybe even less than that, that the U.S. government abandoned the Kurds, and life has been a lot harder for the Kurds since then. Anarchism works, and in fact, it has worked multiple times. Most successfully, I would say, during the Spanish Civil War. But there's a problem. Although you can imagine an anarchist territory cohabiting with nation-states, as Kurdistan has done, also every single nation-state in the area, every single nation-state that has its territory threatened by the existence of Kurdistan wants to destroy Kurdistan, which is why Oshalan has the solution. He said, I'm not trying to take your territory. We are not trying to take your territory. Everything's fine. We can all be fine. We can all work together in a confederation democratically. But the nation state, part of the belief of the nation state, is that the nation state has to control its borders. It has to have borders. It has to have rules about who can cross those borders. And it has to use violence against the people who break the rules. There would be no problem with democratic confederations with anarchism in a world of nation-states, except as soon as you make a democratic confederation, the nation set out to destroy you. The Turks are trying to destroy Kurdistan primarily because it is a challenge to the Turkish nation-state. The fascists and the Soviet Union teamed up to destroy the anarchist part of Spain during the what is called the Spanish Civil War, but which I would prefer to call the, the Spanish Revolution. Tragically destroyed, not by the fascists, by the Stalinists. Because the USSR believed that we need to have nation states for a while, we can't have anarchism yet, so they attacked the anarchist. Finally, most importantly, every anarchist will tell you the most successful anarchist government was the Paris Commune in 1870. The Paris Commune was formed after the Prussians invaded and captured most of the French army. So France was defeated, and the people in Paris said, we don't need France, we're not going to surrender to the Germans, 
we are going to be our own thing. They basically invented anarchism. It had been an idea, but they invented anarchism as a government. But they didn't get a chance to really see if it would work because they immediately got attacked and destroyed. Not by the Prussians, who had subsequently created Germany. The Paris Commune got destroyed by the French army. Now you may be saying, wait, didn't you just say the French army was captured by the Prussians? Oh, absolutely it was. And the Prussians let the French army go. And they said, oh, uh, actually, we're going to leave. And you can go ahead and be France, although you have to give us lots of money. Oh, but um, one thing, we're actually going to let your army out, but you have to kill the anarchists. There's only one thing the Germans hate more than a powerful France, and it's anarchism. So, could anarchism coexist with nation-states? Sure, it could. It would, however, eventually, if it works, dissolve all nation-states. If it doesn't work, no harm, no foul, I would say. But the nation-states know that if anarchism is successful, it would dissolve nation-states. And every nation-state knows this. So whenever an anarchist organization comes into existence, the fascists team up with the communists or the French government teams up with the German government to destroy it. I would argue, though, that is not anarchism's fault. That is completely based on the fear of the nation-state leaders. Okay, final question. I definitely have spoken for longer than I meant to. I'm still figuring this out. Please email me and tell me if you would like me to answer more questions more quickly. I... I, this is my second Q&A podcast and my fourth podcast ever, so bear with me. So Paul writes, So here's my big question for you, and please forgive me if it's a little blunt. I agree that money and rights in nation-states are fictions, and I agree that they only have so much power as we allow them in our day-to-day -day lives. But, well, so what? Why does seeing the world through the lens of anarchism even matter. Wow. Okay. To some extent, Paul, this is the heart of my podcast. Why does it matter? This is a great question. I feel like the question I answered for Sarah in the last Q&A was a version of this question, and I still just have not figured out how to articulate it. And I hope you guys keep sending this question in until I figure out how to articulate it. I will try again now. Why does this matter? Um, money and rights in nation states are fiction, but who cares? Well, I have run into, and I imagine you have run into over and over again, this sense that these things like the nation state are sacrosanct or money is sacrosanct. Okay. So first, Paul agrees with me. This stuff is all made up. Money is all made up. Why does this matter? Well, Guess who has the money? A relatively few people have the money. And what happens if you suggest taxing them? People say, oh, you can't do that. They earned that money. 
It belongs to them. It would be cruel and unfair to take their money away and give it to starving children. You just have to let the billionaires have all their money because they earned it. But money is made up, isn't it? So how could someone have earned money if money is made up? We made a bunch of decisions. Our collective belief created billionaires. And now we don't know what to do. We have all these billionaires and it's ruining our economy. It's destroying our world. It's preventing our political system from working. Well, you know what you could do? You could believe that money is made up. And if money is made up, we have no reason not to just take as much money from the billionaires if we want to. And if they say it's not fair, you can just say, uh, yeah, I mean, fair is just a human concept. And I don't think you want to be arguing that us taking your money and using it to feed starving children is unfair. I'm pretty sure you are unfair. And then they're going to say, oh, well, I played the, by the rules of the game. Well, first of all, you gave Congress millions of dollars to make sure the rules favored you. And secondly, the rules of the game are being made up every day by all of us collectively. So we've decided to change the rules because that's all rules are. A collective decision made by all of us. So if we just decide we want to live in a world without billionaires, we get to live in a world without billionaires because it's all made up. If we decide we want to live in a world without nation states, we can. The nation state system, going back to Mark's question, it has a lot of flaws and problems. I talked about this when I talked about rights and Hannah Arendt. And yet, it endures. Why does it endure? Because we allow it to endure. Finally, and most importantly, right now, jobs are made up. People starve and die in America, a country with the resources to feed everyone because they don't have jobs. But jobs are made up. Bosses almost always have the power to hire and fire whoever they want, but that is made up also. There's no reason, once you realize that your cooperation is the only thing that keeps a company going, well, withdraw that cooperation. This is called a strike, but strikes are, are scary and weird and left-wing and dangerous. It shouldn't be that way. What's weird and scary and dangerous is the fact that millions of people work for Amazon, but Jeff Bezos gets to keep almost all of the money. So Amazon only exists because people collaborate, and yet we have this belief that for some reason the CEO should get most of the money. This is just a made-up belief. The belief that all the workers should get the money I wouldn't argue that's truer in any sort of objective sense than the belief that Jeff Bezos should get all the money. But it seems better, doesn't it? So just believe that one. And I think the thing that is preventing people from believing this is that they don't realize that jobs and money and nation states are all made up. What else can you do? We just live in this world. No. We created this world. 
we can create a different one. But only if we realize that the world we live in is being created by us, each and every one of us, every day. And if enough of us decide that everyone in America gets to eat, no one starves for not having a job, we don't have billionaires anymore, well, the money only exists because we believe in it and the jobs only exist because we believe in them. Stop believing in them and they will go away. Is this revolutionary? Yeah. But we can take it in an everyday way, one step at a time. Less pay to CEOs, more power to people in the workplace. Every day, believe in it. And it will be real because the systems that keep us imprisoned are the product of our belief. It's not because billionaires believe that they are billionaires that they get to rule over us. It's because we believe they are billionaires. I recommend you stop believing. Wow, okay, too much? Definitely got to end it there. Remember, if you have any questions about this or anything else, email me at everydayanarchismpodcast at gmail.com. Next week, there's going to be an episode about divorce, as well as a bonus episode, if all goes well with the recording process, because Sam Brock is in Austria, and this is my first interview, as well as a follow-up episode to Tolkien with Sam Brock. All that's left to say is that our music, which you are about to hear, is by David Hill. If you made it all the way through my first episode, you know that my two-year-old showed up at the end. People asked that he be in future episodes, and he was in this one. That was him jumping up and down directly above the room where I was recording when his grandmother arrived. And yes, that is also him doing that during some of the sequences when I am talking, so you uh, you asked for the two-year-old to be back on the show. He's back. <laughs>